All right, if we can start making our way to our seats, please. Can we get started? Wow, that was quick. All right, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. I'd like to welcome everybody watching us online. I hope you all had a fruitful holiday with family and friends. Have a bunch of announcements getting ready for a Christmas season. So I'm going to go through these a little quick, but just to continue to remind you, all the information you're about to hear is on our website at Gateway Baptist. Somebody hit a button by mistake. There we go. Wow. I speak and the room goes dark. So anyway, don't tell my wife. Okay. Um, so anyway, everything's on our website, gatewaybaptist.com. On the news and events page, you can see everything laid out. But first off, today at 4.30 here in the sanctuary, we have our second and fourth prayer times, second Sunday and fourth Sunday. So it's here today, 4.30, in the sanctuary, led by Greg and Cecilia Teal. Um, just a wonderful time of intercession and prayer if anybody wants to come and join them here in the sanctuary. Lots of Christmas fellowships coming up on the agenda. So first off, this coming Saturday, um, we've been talking about it for weeks, the walk-through nativity experience up in Eclectic. Uh, for those that have registered, it's full, um, but they will, you will be getting details this week through an email, just as a reminder of how things will proceed for this Saturday. Also, uh, Wednesday, December 6th, um, we are having our wonderful gingerbread house decorating fellowship time um, with all the families coming together. We will provide you the gingerbread house. We'll have popcorn, we'll have refreshments, music going, and everybody comes together to decorate uh, their gingerbread house. So that's Wednesday, December 6th. This Wednesday, everything's normal. This will be our last official Bible study time uh, for the holiday season this coming Wednesday, and then we kick into the Christmas schedule the following Wednesday. Um, two ladies' opportunities for Saturday, December 9th. Um, in the morning will be the Homemakers Workshop um, on Christmas baking. It will be at Chrissy Lim's home. Um, so that information, again, is on the website. And then that evening, the ladies can double dip that day. Uh, there will be a mystery dinner called Who Kidnapped Santa? And details and registration are on the website for that as well. So the ladies get to enjoy a wonderful day. Dads, get ready to babysit for a full day. Enjoy your kids. You know, that'll be fun for the ladies to enjoy that. And then we'll have some other announcements coming in the weeks to come for some other events. Very important moment, uh, December 10th, Sunday, December 10th, two weeks from today. This is for members only. Um, we are having an, our annual meeting um, and pizza lunch in the gymnasium immediately following the service. Um, it's a wonderful time for the body to get together as a congregational church to vote on some things, for you to get updates about ministry opportunities, vision for the new year, um, and to vote on the budget. And so obviously we love to encourage you to be a part of that. Please come, and we will have a wonderful meal together and then be able to share some of the details of what's going on. So details and registration are on the website so we can prepare accordingly with enough food. And lastly, as we've celebrated a couple weeks ago, we would also like to celebrate today Mr. Jay Schulenberg, if you would stand, my brother. He graduated from Fisher's Farms. Where is he? There he is. We're so happy for you, brother. God bless you. So excited for your faithfulness in that and just excited for the future God has for you. And we get to enjoy and celebrate him again in two weeks with Believer's Baptism. So we get to experience the time. Jay's getting baptized in a couple weeks. We're so excited for that. Well, let's stand before the Lord. As we want to read a few scriptures over us as we prepare our hearts to worship him. And obviously this whole past week or so, just reflecting on our gratitude and thankfulness of who God is and what he has done in our lives. I want to read Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. 
David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Let's worship him this morning. Shining star, shining star in heaven so bright, lowly tinted flocks by night. Could this be our faith now? Sight, hallelujah! What a sin.
together. Hallelujah. Praise to the one. Oh, hallelujah. And praise to the one whose blood has pardoned me. Oh, what a Savior, Redeemer and King. Your love has rescued me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
strength or might, but in the grace of God, I glory in weakness to live as Christ in plenty or in one, that I may know that all may see His power in me. All my boast is in Jesus. Yeah. 
redeeming us, rescuing us, taking our place, atoning for our sins, being the sacrificial lamb. No merit of our own. We've done nothing. You did it all. And Lord, as we reflect coming up this season of Advent, of us celebrating the incarnation, God coming to us, the creator coming to his creation. Lord, we just acknowledge the glory of that the majesty of that fact. And over these next few weeks, as we reflect on that in different ways with our family and prayer times and intimate times with you, God, just continue to draw us to yourself. Continue to give us revelation of who you are in the intimate times with you, Lord. Just the amazing reality of Emmanuel, God with us, that you came to save. Lord, that's why we can come up each week and confidently pray and submit these prayers to you, knowing that you're a God who hears, a God who listens, a God who acts, and we entrust it to your will, that your kingdom would come and your will be done in these situations, that you're a God who is faithful and trustworthy. And so, Lord, this morning we do thank you and for the ministries here at Gateway, and we thank you so much, God, for our teenagers. We thank you for the youth in our body. We thank you how you are working and moving among them. We thank you that you're drawing them to yourself and 
you're revealing yourself to them, Lord. And I pray for each one here in this room and those that may not be here, God, that you continue to draw them, continue to speak, continue to may your word come alive to them, that you would bring them to a place of conviction and repentance and that they recognize, even at their age, that they can have an intimate, personal, wonderful relationship with you, Lord, that they can have an impact in their families, that they can be salt and light among their brothers and sisters and their parents and their classmates at school and those that have jobs, that you have called them into this world, Lord, to be your ambassador, to represent you well. And those that don't know you yet, God, continue to speak and to reveal and to take the blinders off, God, to bring them to a place of repentance, that they would know you for who you are, the beautiful Savior and Lord that we know and love. And we just thank you, God, for what you're doing among them. Continue to have impact in their lives and those around them, Lord. God, we thank you for Lenny and Debbie Dixon and their ministry at Shepherd Staff, especially during this time of year when many are in need and, and come out to express those things. And we just pray, God, you give them wisdom, discernment, strength, and peace, everything they need, God, to minister to this community, the poor, the needy. They just live day to day by being led by your spirit on where you desire them to invest themselves for your kingdom's sake, that the gospel would go forth to love on people, to show mercy. We pray you continue to provide everything they need, all the resources to be salt and light in this community. And Lord, your word says that we are to pray for our government leaders. And Lord, we lift up President Biden today. God, we pray by your spirit, Lord, that you would draw him to yourself, that he would be a man of conviction, a man that seeks your wisdom and righteousness and justice, that you would give him wisdom to lead well, to have those around him to seek wisdom on, for you and for guidance on every decision that's made, Lord. There's a lot on his plate now. We pray for his health for his mind, that you would work in that way, Lord. We pray for healing. We pray if there's any situations we don't know about, God, that you would bring him to health so that he can function in a way to seek you and to make decisions for our nation and for those around him to bring wisdom and support and strength that he needs. Lord, continue to reveal yourself to him so that he would know you intimately and personally and look to you for his needs, for everything. We entrust him to you, God. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to pray for those around the world. And we thank you so much for the relationship we have with Mescal's Children's Center in Kenya. We thank you for Emily Naylor and her represented, representing them and working with them and reached out to her this week. And she just said that the community where they are there in Kenya is under some hard times economically. Food and work and money are scarce. So many in that community are coming to Mescal's to seek help. Lord, we just pray for your provision. We pray for wisdom for the leadership at Mescals and that surrounding area, God, that you would bring the resources needed and not just monetary, God, but the beauty of the gospel, that those that come would experience your love, grace, and mercy as they extend the hand of, to provide the needs um, in a monetary way, a physical need, but God, that they would come to saving faith, those in that community. Bless those kids. Bless everything that they need with the schooling, their provision for the, the housing, whatever it is, God that you would continue to guide and direct their steps. And Lord, we thank you for the offering that's been given today and online. You are a good God in providing all that we need. We pray you continue to give us wisdom to be good stewards of your resources and what you desire to do here at Gateway. And lastly, Lord, thank you so much for Grady. Thank you for his heart to lead us, to shepherd us. We pray for wisdom today and that you give him discernment and strength, that you would guide and direct everything he shares this morning from your word. Just bless him as he comes. 
Again, thank you, Lord, that we can gather and worship you and declare that Jesus is Lord. Again, we say this often, but may we never take for granted that we can meet like this, that we can gather in a nation and freely worship you. We thank you for this time together as your family. Continue to guide and direct us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while they're in the movie, you'll find Genesis chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 2. Now, today we come to a big transition in in the book of Genesis. Not only do we come to the end of chapter 2, now it only took us 14 weeks to get there, but we've made it to the end of chapter 2 here. But today we come to the end of God's initial creation acts. Today we come to the end of the section we've been in on the creation of humanity. We also come today to the end of perfection in the world. As we begin next week with Genesis chapter 3, things turn darker. We begin to see sin come into the world and begin to see the darkness and the brokenness associated with sin. But for today, we're in the last verses when the world is perfect. And we get to see the last thing that God established when the world was perfect. And what is the last thing we see God establish here? That's the institution of marriage. So here at the end of the creation account, we have the creation of God's plan for marriage, God's perfect design for marriage, where he brings one man and one woman together for life in a covenant relationship. Now, before we dig into God's perfect design for marriage, I want to remind us the world as we live in now is not as it was when God first created it. Sin has come into the world and has affected every part of our lives, including our relationships, and yes, that includes marriages. That means the reality is we talk about God's perfect plan for marriage, it can bring up painful emotions and feelings for some of you. For some of you, seeing God's perfect design for marriage is a contrast with your own experience. It brings up the reality of other people's sin against you. Many of you have been wounded by the sins of your spouse. Some of you have not been pursued and valued and loved the way that God called your spouse to do. Some of you have been abandoned and hurt by the one who had pledged to love you. And so when we come to this beautiful picture of marriage in Genesis 2, we want to just acknowledge the fact that some of you will feel pain in this. And I hope this text will help you lament the brokenness of how other sin has hurt you. And I pray it will help drive you to seek God's grace for healing and for hope, but also to help you think through biblically how to respond to the sins that have been done to you. For some of you, as we talk about God's perfect plan for marriage, it points out to you your own sin. And this text becomes a mirror that points out to you your own sin and your own shortcomings and how you yourself have hurt your spouse. And I pray for you, this text will help you, will bring conviction to you, will help you understand God's plan for your life and will lead you to a place to where you confess your sin and practice repentance. And some of you today may need to, before the day is over, confess some sins to your spouse and seek reconciliation to your spouse. For some of you, the reality of God's perfect plan for marriage brings up the pain that your spouse is no longer with you. Your spouse is now with the Lord. And we pray for you, that for you who are widows, that this text will help you be thankful for the years that you had, as well as turn your hope to eternity, which is what this text really is all about. And then for some of you, this text does bring up the pain of unfulfilled longings, your desire to be married, and yet God has not provided that for you and his plan for you. And I hope today this text will help you to trust the Lord and to help you be reminded that your ultimate longings are met, not in a human relationship, but in Christ. 
And so, friends, regardless of where you are, God wants you to understand his plan for marriage because it's so foundational to how he desires his world to work and because it points all of us, married or not, young or old, to a much deeper reality, to a much greater reality God wants us to know. So as we come to Genesis 2, we're going to look at verses 24 and 25 today. As we read this, I want you to be looking for what is God's plan for marriage. But even more, I want you to be looking for what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God make marriage? As we think through this, keep that big picture in view, the why question. Why did God make marriage? What is its purpose? So let's look for that as we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We have God's revelation to us, and I want us to be thankful for that. Genesis 2, starting at verse 24, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me? Father, we continue to thank you that you are a revealing God, that you've not hidden yourself from us, you've not hidden your will from us, but you have plainly spoken and put it in writing for us so we can know who you are and we can know your plans for us. And so, Lord, as we talk about marriage today, Lord, I know there's just so many different experiences in this room, and I pray you'll meet each person where they are at. If they're full of joy today, I pray that you would encourage them, Lord. If there's conviction of sin needed, I pray you'll bring them conviction of sin. If there's pain they feel from others' sin, that you would bring them today hope and healing in that. Lord, if there's unfulfilled longings, I pray today that you would just comfort them in your love and your presence and your plan for them. Lord, wherever each person is at today, would you use your word to meet them where they're at, and to grow them and shape them into who you desire for them to be. Lord, we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we look at these verses, again, I want to keep in view the big question of what is the purpose of marriage. There's so much we could talk about with this text, and I've struggled because we could spend a month or two just on this text here. But since we've already 14 weeks in Genesis and only in chapter 2, I fear we'd just do this in one week here. But maybe down the road we'll have multiple weeks on these verses here. But today let's hone in on the purpose of marriage here. Now let me remind you, this is not the first text we've seen that shows us the purpose of marriage. In fact, we've seen three purposes for marriage in the first two chapters of Genesis already. Let me remind you of those. One of the purposes for marriage is for relationship, is for relationships. If you remember that marriage is one of the ways that God uses to provide for people so that they're not alone. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see this with Adam. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So one aspect of God's plan for marriage is to be relationship. The second part of God's purpose for marriage is for having physical and spiritual children. Having physical and spiritual children. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in verse 28, he goes on. I think that, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you remember from that sermon, there's a calling for us if we're able to, to have the next generation, but even more for all of us to not just to have children, but to value children and to be shaping them and pointing children to Christ so they would come to know and love God. So one aspect of marriage is for physical and spiritual children, for physical children and for discipleship of children in our lives. A third purpose of marriage was to work together to serve God, to work together to serve God and to serve other people. We saw that no one person can do everything God has called his people to do. Not even Adam in the state of perfection could perfectly follow God's plan alone. He needed people in his life. Remember Genesis 1.28 right there? Let's go back to Genesis 1.28. There's one more part of that. That that command to not only be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but notice this, and to subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing 
that moves on the earth. There was no way Adam could do that alone. He needed others to come alongside him. Then Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, this command that God gave him. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So those three things, relationship, physical and spiritual children, working to serve God and serve others, are all very biblical purposes for marriage. But there's one more purpose for marriage I want us to explore this morning from Genesis 2. Now, before we get to that, notice what we have not said about the purpose of marriage. Because what we've not said is probably the more dominant views of what marriage is all about. God's purposes for marriage are not about personal fulfillment and happiness. They're not about the feelings of love. They're not about having someone in your life to fulfill your fantasies. They're not about having someone in your life to do the things you do not want to do so you can fulfill your idols of career or hobbies or success. That's not what marriage is about. God did not make marriage for those things. He made marriage for his glory. He made marriage for his plans. And he made marriage for those things we talked about, for relationship, for serving him and serving others, for discipling the next generation. He made him for good things. There's one more good thing of marriage, one more good purpose of marriage I want you to see today. And this is it. Here's kind of the summary, and then we'll unpack it. God made marriage to be a lifelong covenant to help us understand our relationship with God. Foundationally, one of the main purposes of marriage in this life is to help us understand our relationship with God. Whether you are married or not, the purposes for the marriages around you is to point you to understand how God relates to you and how God loves you. Marriage is part of God's revelation of who he is and how he relates to us. And so God desires for us, desires for our kids, desires for our friends, desires for others around us to see how he relates to his church by the way we are married. Now to see this truth, I want us to start with just the basic teaching of the text to make sure we understand what this text is saying before we can unpack this ultimate meaning of marriage. So go back to verse 24 here and look at what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now if you want a one-word summary of what verse 24 is, the word is covenant. This is all about a covenant. Now, that's not a word we use every day. So what is a covenant? A covenant ultimately is a promise, right? It's a promise that is made. But more than that, a covenant is a promise that stipulates how a relationship works. And legally, it's an unchangeable agreement that governs the terms of a relationship. So it's a promise. It's an unchanging promise of how people will relate together. Now, a marriage covenant here in verse 24 involves three different things, and all three of these are part and essential of the covenant. There are three terms of the covenant, if you will, three stipulations, three conditions of the covenant. The first one here in verse 24 is a leaving. The first aspect of the covenant is there's a leaving. Look back at the first part of the verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, let me clarify something here. Leaving is not about location, okay? At the time this was written in throughout much of the Old Testament, the man did not leave his parents physically. In fact, his new wife came and lived with them, often in the same house. Now, you see this throughout all of the Old Testament. Think about like Jacob or Israel. When his sons got married, they didn't move away from Jacob's land. The wives came to their land and the generations began to grow and Israel became a nation as they stayed together. So this is not about physically leaving a house it's not about that. What it's about, it's about loyalty. It's about who your primary loyalty is to. This means for married couples, your first loyalty is no longer your parents. You have a higher loyalty now, and that is your spouse. In other words, this new loyalty is about starting a new family unit with your new focus, new emphasis, and a new priority. And friends, that's where so many marriages today have problems, because the husband or the wife keeps their primary loyalty to someone other than their spouse. 
Friends, our job in Scripture, if you're married to your parents, is to honor them. Now, honoring does not mean you obey them. Honoring does not mean you have to keep them happy and humor every whim they have. Honoring is a heart attitude about your speech and your attitude towards your parents. But the honor, you can honor them, and you still have a new priority, a new loyalty, and that is to your spouse. And so the first part of this covenant is this idea of leaving, of having a new loyalty. But there's a second part of this covenant relationship, and that is holding fast. Look back at verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, depending on what translation you use, some may say you're joined to your wife. Some may say you're bonded to your wife. Some may say you're united to your wife. And none of those really capture the depth of what the Hebrew word here means. The best translation, I think, of this Hebrew word is to stick. The husband is to leave and to stick to his wife. So maybe more modern English translation is he is to be permanently super glued to his wife forever. I think that more captures for us the idea of what this is about. This is pledging for a lifetime sticking, a faithful, exclusive bond between one another. And again, friends, this is covenantal language. I think for us, we miss this idea of holding fast and sticking as covenantal language. We don't see it the way that the original Jewish audience would. I want you to notice how the same word is used in other parts of the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. Notice how the same word gets used. If you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast, sticking to him. Same word. In the Old Testament, this holding fast, sticking was used in terms of relating to God. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, you see the same thing. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him. And here it is again. Hold fast. You shall stick to him. And so when we come to Genesis 2, 24, go back to verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother, <coughs> excuse me, and hold fast or stick to his wife. This is a serious thing that's being said here. This is a pledge of absolute commitment, of loyalty, of sticking to one another. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. He says, staying married, therefore, is not about staying in love. It's about keeping covenant. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is a sacred covenant promise. And then Richard Phillips, one of my favorite authors, says, because it is unique in its intimacy, the husband and wife forsake all others and give themselves to one another without reserve. I was like, what a great way to understand that. We're in sticking. You're to give yourself to one another without reserve. Because I going to say, how tragic is such intimate giving, physical, sexual, and spiritual, when not guarded by the bonds of covenant commitment. And friends, how many people do we know and some of you who deal today with the pain of a spouse who did not stick, but gave himself or herself physically or emotionally to another person? But even if not in that sense, a spouse who gave himself or herself to careers or hobbies instead of to you. Yet in God's perfect design, marriage is to be a covenant that involves leaving, prioritizing the new relationship, and sticking this absolute commitment to your spouse forever. But there's a third part of the covenant relationship here of marriage, and that's becoming one flesh. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, yes, friends, there is a physical aspect to this that perhaps people typically think of. And Scripture is serious about that. Scripture commands there to be sexual expression in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, <coughs> excuse me, verse 5. You're told to do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together against so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
So the only place in marriage where there's to be withdrawal of the physical expression of oneness is for the sake of prayer and only for a short time. So Scripture is serious about the expression of this in marriage, but Scripture is also serious about only expressing it within marriage no other way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, and there's so many texts like this one. We're told to flee from sexual immorality, and that's anything. That's any expression of sexuality outside of the covenant bond of marriage. We're to flee from it, run from it, don't even give hint to it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So what do we do? Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So go back to verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his life, and they shall become one flesh. So yes, that is a, the physical part of that is part of what this is about. But friends, that is not all this is about. Oneness is much more than just physical. Oneness is about a totality of seeking oneness mentally, emotionally, spiritually, your whole life. This is about a husband and wife together seeking God, about a husband and wife together pursuing each other's interests, a husband and wife together trying to understand each other's emotions and fears and dreams and hopes, about a husband and wife together having complete honesty and openness about their struggles and where they are and sharing all parts of their life. Oneness is much bigger. So a quick word on that. Husbands, you cannot go to your wives demanding physical oneness if you are not willing to put the hard work in of emotionally and spiritually trying to connect with your wives as well. Oneness is not just physical. It's a total investment of your whole life, body, soul, spirit, mind, everything together in pursuing oneness. Friends, the reality is so many marriages today break down over this idea of oneness. I heard a counselor say years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, love is unconditional in marriage, but oneness is very conditional. Think about that. Love is unconditional. You love your spouse, but oneness, the experience of oneness is very conditional. It requires daily effort. It requires daily tending, and it will, you will never achieve oneness by passively waiting for it. And the reality for us in our age of great self-focus, in our age of great self-centeredness, oneness is often lacking in many, many marriages because one or both spouses is more focused on their own agenda than pursuing oneness. Please don't miss that. In our age of radical self-centeredness and self-focus, oneness is often missing, and even in many Christian marriages, because one or both spouse people are more focused on their own agenda and their own dreams than they are on pursuing oneness with their spouse. Richard Phillips says it so well. He says, oneness requires us to give things up, to live differently than we did previously, God did not put Adam in the garden to be infatuated with his tools and his toys and his self-centered lifestyle. The unity of this one flesh idea is the great principle of every marriage. Both man and woman must leave behind those elements of their formal lives that are an impediment to unity. It means that activities, commitments, or relationships that undermine the trust and unity of the marriage need to go or at least to change. Many husbands need to give up some of their passion for viewing sports, time spent with the guys, or even excessive career ambitions so as to have more time for their wives. The same is true of women who need to leave behind some pursuits and passions that stand in the way of their union with their husbands. So in God's perfect design, what marriage is supposed to be is a covenant where the man and the wife leave, where they prioritize their marriage above all other earthly relations, where they stick, where they commit to one another in an exclusive way, and where they pursue oneness, where they daily put forth effort to be one mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically with great effort towards one another. For that plan, that vision for marriage God established in Genesis 2 is so important that Jesus repeats it verbatim in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, see if this doesn't sound familiar. He, Jesus' answer said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then verse 5, 
and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father's mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is so important that Jesus directly quotes what we just read in Genesis 2 in establishing and verifying God's plan for marriage. But notice Jesus is going to add something to what was first revealed in the Old Testament. Very next verse in verse 6. Notice what Jesus adds. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So yes, that phrase is more than just a nice thing we stick at the end of a wedding ceremony for tradition's sake. It's the words of Jesus for God's plan. And it's a warning for us because the reality is there's so much that can break that oneness that God creates. There's so much that can break that joining of a man and wife in a covenant relationship that God brings together. Yes, the things you typically think of that break it, adultery, pornography, sexual sins, yes, all those things break the covenant and should not be there because that will separate. But the reality is so many other good things break and separate what God has joined. Our idolatry of careers and hobbies and dreams and entertainment, any number of good or sinful things can get in the way and break what God has joined together. So Jesus warns us, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. But friends, when by God's grace, those covenant responsibilities are kept and a husband and wife leave, superglue stick and pursue with intentionality oneness, what happens, what's the result? And that's verse 25. Verse 25 is the result of covenant faithfulness here. It can only be created in response to the covenant. Notice verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the key word here is this word not ashamed or no shame. This idea of not having clothes on here is about more than just not having physical clothes on. That's part of it here. It's about complete vulnerability with one another. The picture that's being painted for us here is for Adam and Eve. There was no shame. There was no embarrassment. There was no hiding. They could fully trust each other. They could fully be open with one another. It was an unconditional love, trust, acceptance, oneness, joy with no barriers between them. One of the authors I read described it well. It said there was between Adam and Eve an openness and a unity, not masked by guilt, not disordered by lust, and not hampered by shame. It's like, what a great picture of that first marriage. It was a relationship that was not masked by guilt, not disordered by lust, and not hampered by shame. And friends, even though we deal with sin daily, what God desires for our marriages to be like, what he wants us to long for and seek his grace to become like is this, to have marriages where there's a complete openness and trust and no shame between one another. James Montgomery Boyce says it well in his book from Genesis. He says, one of the great wonders of a Christian marriage is that the man and the woman can allow themselves to be known by each other and to know that each is accepted in spite of his or her sin and imperfections. God designed marriage to be a place where there is no shame like this. This is what marriage by God's design is to be like. This is what men and women are to pursue together in a covenant relationship. But what about back to that first question? What do those things have to do with the purpose for marriage? What does those things to do of leaving and sticking or supergluing and pursuing what have to do with the purpose of marriage? Now to answer that, we have to go to another New Testament text. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's just sound familiar again. Now this is Paul speaking. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there it is again, quoted verbatim again. This Genesis 2 text is so important. Now Paul's quoting it. But why does Paul quote it? Because he wants us to see the purpose for marriage. Notice what he says in the next, very next verse, in verse 32. This mystery is profound. Now when the New Testament speaks of mystery, it doesn't mean something you and I can't understand. 
It means there was something in the past that's now understood in Christ. Something in the past that would not have been understood fully, but can now be understood fully because we have the New Testament revelation. We have what Christ has shown us. What he's saying is for Adam and Eve, they didn't fully understand what marriage was pointing to. It was a mystery to them, but now the mystery in God's revelation has been given to us. And what is the purpose of marriage? It refers to Christ and the church. So why did God make marriage a covenant? Because he's pointing us to a greater covenant, how the covenant-making God relates to his people. The point of marriage is to show us how God relates to us and the covenant he makes with us, a God who will hold fast to us. John 10, 28. What's up? Why do we hold fast to marriage? Because it's showing us how God holds fast to us. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why do we pursue unity in marriage? Because God in Christ unites us to himself. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so the whole point in marriage of holding fast and uniting is to pointing us to the God who is uniting us to himself and holding fast to us. And will do so not only now, but for forever and will never let us go. Psalm 73, 24. I love how the psalmist says it. You guide me with your counsel. That's our relationship with God now. And afterwards you will receive me to glory that forever he will be holding us. Forever we will be united to himself. And so this, the whole point of marriage is pointing us to what God does for us. But it also points us to how we respond to God. We do the very same three things that we see husbands and wives doing to one another. We leave our worldly ways behind. We leave those because we have a new loyalty. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You've seen this many times recently. It's obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Why? Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the point of leaving in marriage is to help us understand the leaving we have in Christ so we have a new loyalty to him. The whole reason we stick in marriage is because it's showing us how we stick to God. Matthew 22, 37 and 38. As he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. Then in verse 38, this is the great in the first commandment. This idea idea in marriage of a total giving of yourself to your spouse is pointing us to the total giving of ourselves to God in response to his pursuit of us. And we intentionally pursue oneness in marriage because it points us to how we're to intentionally pursue oneness with Christ. Not only are we positionally united to God in Christ, we can practically grow in experiencing oneness with him. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Everything else to him is rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, he carries on. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So in marriage, we do the work of pursuing oneness because it's a picture for us of how we do the work of responding to God's grace to pursue knowing God more. And so friends, think back to marriage. When a husband and wife seek God's grace to leave, to stick, to pursue oneness, what was the result? Go back to verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. The result was no shame. And what happens when we respond to God's grace that pursues us? What happens for us is God removes our shame. Romans 10, 10 and 11. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then in verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I hope you see these beautiful parallels between what earthly marriage is to be and what is pointing us to in these realities of how we relate to Christ. We have no shame now before God because Christ has taken it for us. He's dealt with it so that we can stand before him unashamed now and forever. And so the Bible begins with marriage for this greater purpose of showing us how we relate to God so they can then point us to the end of the Bible, which ends with marriage as well. Genesis starts with marriage and Revelation ends with marriage, but a different type of marriage that is pointing us to. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Notice this, for the marriage of the lamb has come and this bride has made herself ready. This marriage is about the marriage of Christ and the church. It was granted for her, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse nine, he carries on. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, do you see how the Bible begins with marriage to point us to the end of the Bible and the ultimate marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the church of Christ is united forever with Christ in this. That means whether you are married or not in this life, this is your future. If you are in Christ, you are forever united to the covenant-keeping God, the one who will hold you fast eternally, the one who will take away your shame, the one who will clothe you in his righteousness and purity. And so, friends, if you are married, your purpose in marriage is to point to that. The ultimate reality of your marriage is not your happiness or your self-actualization. The point of your marriage is to be a picture of that from Revelation 19 so that you and your spouse better understand what this is going to be like of being united to Christ forever. So your kids get a picture in how you as husband and wife relate to how Christ takes care of his church. So your friends around you, so the people you know, get a picture and a living testimony of what the gospel is through your marriage. And for all of us, this text is a reminder, whether you're married or not, of the grace gift that awaits each one of us if we are in Christ. That this is our future. This is our hope to be forever united with Christ, bound to him, him holding us fast eternally with all of our shame removed. And so Jesus calls us to remember how this has been done. He just calls us to think about the cost of salvation. This gift of being invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb comes with a cost, not to us, but a cost to Christ. But Christ also calls us to think about this day and to long for. Notice Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. These should be familiar words for us because we read these often, but there's something we often miss in this, and I failed to read far enough too many times with us. Notice what Jesus said. This should sound really familiar. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? The breaking of bread. Took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. But notice this in verse 28. Where's he going next? For this is the blood of the, what's the next word? Of the covenant. Here it is again in the middle of the Lord, teaching of the Lord's Supper. The reminder of the covenant. The covenant God makes with us. His covenant of grace that he pours on us, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, too often I have a stop reading there when we take communion. Because we're thinking about the cost of our salvation. That Christ dying on the cross and his body being broken, his blood being shed. But we need to keep verse 29 if you also, because Jesus turns us forward thinking. What's the next thing he tells his disciples? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There at the Lord's Supper, he's pointing them to that wedding feast of the Lamb when they will get to experience drinking that again with him. And so Jesus wants us to remember not only the cost of our salvation, he wants us to look with eternal lives at the day we're coming when we are united with him forever. And so the whole point of your marriage, if you're married, the whole point of the marriages around you is to be a picture of that reality, of God's covenant of grace that he makes with his people, the picture of that reality of how God holds fast to us and God sticks to us and God takes away our shame and he will for all eternity. And so with all that in view, I want us to close today with communion, with the very thing that Jesus was telling us about there, turning our mind back to how his forgiveness is available for us, thinking about the bread, his body being broken, the blood being poured out, but not forgetting verse 29 today either, making sure we're thinking eternally as well to the day that we get to experience the wedding feast of the Lamb. So in light of Jesus' teachings on why we take communion, I want to remind us this is only for believers It's only for those who know their followers of Christ, who know their sins are forgiven, that Christ has taken away your shame, that he is holding fast to you, that he is sticking to you, that you are being held by him. Friends, if you do not know that you stand forgiven before God and you're not experiencing the joy of a real relationship with him, we'd ask you to not participate. Scripture warns us about taking this in an unworthy way. So if you're not sure you belong to Christ and you're having the joy of walking, we'd ask you just to remain seated while we take this. No one's going to come and embarrass you. We just want you to use this time to reflect and to pray. But if you know Jesus, if you know that one day you'll be at that wedding feast of the Lamb, then we invite you to come to look forward to that day, but also to look back and remember the cost of your salvation, to think about what Jesus did so that you could be forgiven. But as well, we want to use this time to reflect and pray. There's a lot to think about, and so if you're married, I hope you'll take the time as you're waiting to receive the elements this morning and to ask the Lord to search your heart and to say, Lord, is my marriage pointing to this reality that we've talked about today? Am I loving my spouse the way you love us? And to ask those questions, if not, the Lord's Supper is a great time to confess our sins before the Lord and to ask him for wisdom of how to move forward. And for all of us, whether you're married or not, I hope you'll use this time as you think about the elements and think about the wedding feast of the Lamb to ask, am I living like I'm longing for that day? Is my life pointing to eternity? Is my focus on eternity? If not, again, use the time to confess that and to use the time to ask the Lord to grow in you that type of eternal perspective. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, our musicians and praise team will come to receive the elements. And after they receive the elements, our ushers will direct you to come receive them as well. We'll ask you to come down, make two lines down the middle to receive them, and then to go back to your seats. There's no rush. You can take them when you're ready. We hope you'll take time not just to rush through taking this, but to confess sins to the Lord, to talk to him, to thank him for his grace, to pray, and just to reflect and to worship the Lord during this time. And for those who have dietary needs, we do have pre-sealed, gluten-free, dietary-friendly bread up here as well for you. But let me pray for us, and then we'll celebrate, continue to worship the Lord through the Lord's Supper. God, we are thankful that you're a God of grace, that you've not treated us like our sins deserve. Lord, if we got what we deserved, every single one of us would be condemned in, in hell for all eternity. But God, you looked upon us in our helpless state, and you showed mercy and grace on us. And Lord Jesus, while we were still enemies, you willingly came And you lived a perfect life to fulfill the law that we cannot fulfill, the law that we break every day. You died on that cruel Roman cross to take the wrath that I deserve and that we all deserve. And you rose on the third day, defeating death. So if we are united with you, we too will be raised to walk in newness of life. I pray that as we receive the bread and receive the juice today, 
that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. But I pray today, Lord, we not only look back with thankfulness, that we would look forward with anticipation to that wedding supper of the Lamb when we get to spend eternity with you forever in your presence. Lord, forgive us for being so short-sighted and not thinking about that often enough and turn our focus to eternity this morning. And I do pray if there's anyone, whether an adult or a child in this room, who does not know you, who's never experienced this grace gift of salvation, that God, they would not leave this room unchanged, but you would soften their hearts today, that they would, you would remove whatever lies of the enemy, whatever excuses of their minds there are. And today they would cry out to you just as they're sitting there in simple faith saying, Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me. I want to belong to you. And I pray that the joy that so many of us have in knowing we belong to you, that you are holding us, that you are sticking fast us, that you are faithful to us, that they would be able to leave today with that same joy. Lord, would you give us hearts of thankfulness and hearts of anticipation as we continue to worship you through receiving of the elements of the Lord's Supper, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Join in, let's sing together. I once was lost. And I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to.
Lord, we pray that would be not just mere words we sing, but the cry of our heart all this week. That we can not manufacture those desires and those affections to say with open hands, Lord, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Lord, you know how quickly we make tight fists with our lives with the things you give to us. And Lord, I pray this week you would give us much grace to trust you, to trust your goodness, to trust your sovereignty, to trust your power and trust your love for us and be able to say with our hands open wide, Lord, use our lives in any way you choose. Lord, I pray for the married couples of this church. You grow us this week. Lord, you grow us in understanding this ultimate purpose of our marriage and that, Lord, this week, our kids, our friends, our neighbors would see something is changing in us as we think about eternity and think about what marriage symbolizes. And I pray for all of us, single or married, that today, Lord, you'd be turning our hearts all this week to thinking about eternity and longing for eternity to where we all can say with hope and confidence, all I have is Christ. So Lord, work that in us. We cannot work that ourselves. We come to you humbly in dependence and in great need, saying, do what only you can do. Have your way in our lives this week. Do it for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.